Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we pronounce French words like American swine. I know that it's not Pensies, but it's Pensies. Um, this is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Um, I just want to give a shout out before we get going uh, to the Patreon supporters. You guys are awesome. If you've benefited from the show, please consider becoming a, a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description. Uh, another way to support the show is to subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. If you're listening uh, on the podcast app, go to YouTube and subscribe to the channel. That would be fantastic. And then uh, a super erogatory way that you could help is to go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment. That'd be huge. Like I've been saying, the more of you who do that, the less time I'll have to spend talking right now. So let's jump into today's topic. We're going to be getting into Job, the book of Job, and we're going to be looking at uh, a new philosophical commentary by my friend, Dr. Owen Anderson. So let's pull him in. Dr. Anderson, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. Yeah, I just lost my... There we go. Cool. <clears throat> yeah, man. Uh, like you said last time, this is going to have to be uh, Parker and Owen's pensies because you've been on so many times. <laughs> I'm kind of the sidekick, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's I used a reference that time. I'm the Ed McMahon and no one knows who, who, who right. are you talking about. Johnny Carson. <laughs> I'll be getting more update. I'll, I'll be Batman or uh, Robin or something. How's yeah, that? that's great. That's great. It was like Batman and Superman because we're, you know, it's... <laughs> it's Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Owen, man, what... Uh, real quick, what, what got you into writing this book? So the uh, book of Job just has always interested me, but one of my main areas of study is the problem of evil, because I think that's really the main objection to belief in God. There's, yeah. I call that the major objection. There's maybe eight or 10 minor objections that are pretty common yeah. and they're important by minor. I don't mean not important. Mm -hmm. You should respond to them, but the major one, this is just numerically and existentially the one that everyone goes to. Yeah. And so I think, Given that and given my my appreciation of Job, I was stunned by the kinds of readings the book is given. And it is largely just given a kind of what we call a divine command fideist reading, which is Job is complaining and it doesn't go anywhere with his friends. God shows up and puts Job in his place. And Job says, I'm sorry for talking out of turn. <laughs> and I, I heard that reading of Job from leading continental philosophers, leading Christian philosophers, leading analytic philosophers from theologians. And so I thought, yeah, we just need to have a different treatment of Job. I don't think that's what's happening in Job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I wrote a, a paper on uh, biblical theology of wisdom, and I tried to go through the wisdom literature. And I, looking at Job from a, a biblical theological and philosophical perspective, I was also reading uh, the uh, the dialogues, Plato's dialogues at the time, mm -hmm. and I thought this seems to me like a pro proto Platonic yeah. dialogue. And I don't think Carson he didn't like. He, well, why does it have to be proto? Well, because we know about Plato's dialogues. It's, yeah, that's, it's proto. Yeah. Would Would you agree with that? We've talked about that. I a actually, bit say before. something like that. I mean, okay. I say the the body, the structure of this is a philosophical dialogue, like the Platonic dialogues. But then I say, really, what we should say is those are like Job. Right. Right. And because that's what, what I say point. is that Job's the first philosopher. Okay, And I, I mean that in a couple ways. So we, we get the idea that Thales is the first philosopher from Aristotle. And yeah. he, we, we, we go with that because basically Thales and the Greek materialists departed from the Iliad and, and yeah. polytheism and started uh, asking other kinds of questions. Yeah, he and predicted so the first that Greek philosophy. Predicted the first uh, lunar eclipse, right? Or solar eclipse? Yeah, he's using naturalistic causes and giving yeah. a, a physical uh, description of reality, just water. So we go with that in one way. But for Job, first philosopher, Job historically comes before that. Now, let's say someone will say Job's not real. It's just a story. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Job was real, and I could tell you why I think that. He's probably dated to around the time of Abraham. I can mm -hmm. tell you why. Uh, I lean towards thinking Moses wrote this. It's an account by Moses of a historical person. Yeah. But even if all that's not true, the book, if, if it is a fictional book, 
it was written before Thales. Right. So even if, yeah, even if there was no Job, which both of us think there was a Job, even if there wasn't the philosophical treatise that is Job predates Thales. Yeah. So first philosopher that way in like Mm -hmm. the first line, but also more important for my point is first philosopher in dealing with the first philosophical question, Mm -hmm. the question of meaning. Yeah. Job, the book of Job, Job as a historical figure wrestles with something that we all wrestle with as soon as we start thinking. And he does that at the very beginning of history as a witness down through the ages for all the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. So um, I can't remember if you if you dealt with this or not, but I know we've talked about it. The so Aristotle calls us, you know, the rational animals. And there's there's something to that. But uh, the first question is, is why you've talked about this in the book, uh, the why questions. So does that does that get at like the the substance of, of who we are? Is that is that what it is that part of what it means to be human? Is that we ask why? I think so. And I think I think uh, rational animal can be ambiguous. Right. Because then we'll have I, I was just watching a really interesting documentary about about the octopus. And they're brilliant. They can solve problems left and right. I know. And so yeah. someone could say, well, that's rational. I mean, okay, it's a kind of practical rationality. So that does lead into ambiguity. Whereas, yeah, I don't think that any documentary has ever been done about the octopus kind of reflecting back and saying, sure, I can escape from the laboratory, but why? Like, what's the point <laughs> of it all? Or, or uh, contemplating the octopusness. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's the sense of rationality of of getting to the meaning of things. And especially the meaning of suffering. That's where these these two intersect. Mm-hmm. You're going along in life and bam, suffering hits you. And you have to ask why. And it gets worse than that because it's not just the suffering. You then have to deal with your own self-justification, which is when others ask you about it and you say, I'm doing great. I don't deserve this. Yeah. And then you're also your internal self-deception, which is you don't even see it. And so that's why it's hard. So part of the point I make is that suffering is not simply about sin or moral evil, which is what the guys are dialoguing about in the book, but it's also about the the self-deception, self-justification we set up. Yeah. And that's a pattern we see all the way back into Genesis chapter three with Adam and Eve. They both do that same thing. Mm-hmm. They could repent when they feel shame, but instead they cover themselves. They could repent when God says, where are you? But instead they blame each other. Mm-hmm. And so it's at that point in Genesis 3 that God introduces natural evil, old age, sickness, and death. Mm-hmm. So this changes the equation a little bit because Job's friends do want to say there's a kind of mathematical equation for suffering. Each of them has a little bit differently. I, I try to get into their personalities and kind of flesh them out a little bit so we get to know them. Yeah, and I, each I really of them like has that a different approach to saying when you sin, God makes you suffer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and, well, Eliphaz, uh, I think, particularly stands out in, in your treatment of him, uh, just in a simple line, the righteous do not suffer. And this is uh, in the commentaries that I looked at when I was writing my paper, they all called it uh, a me- mechanical view of divine retribution. Yeah. And that's that's really what he's getting at. And it's it's one thing to say that. And it's so much easier to say, hey, the righteous do not suffer. So I yeah, appreciated yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he almost he develops the problem of evil just like Epicurus does later. Right. And. Yeah, it's a very simple view, which we hear from people say all the time. Why is God punishing me? Now, here's what's interesting. Back in, in Genesis 3, natural evil wasn't the punishment. Natural evil was a callback from sin. The punishment was the spiritual death they immediately experienced. Yeah. If someone was to say natural evil is the punishment, then we don't need Christ because we've suffered the punishment already. Yeah. What if, what if it's a salvation? So I, I, I get you. I'm just thinking of a possible counterexample or a counterpoint. What, what if we're con, um, enduring the punishment, but Christ saves us from continuing on, right? So some people say, if you've sinned against a, an internal God, you need an eternal punishment. Yeah. So, punishment. I think, and I think that's true. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not an annihilationist or anything, right. um, but that the punishment is related to the crime. Mm-hmm. That's the very nature of a just punishment. So if I've turned my back on God, to use an analogy that's often used, then the just punishment is that God turns his back on me. Hmm. It doesn't follow that if I turn my back on God, my seven children should die. Right. 
So the, the God turning his back on us is he leaves us in that condition of spiritual death. Yeah. That's the just punishment. But if you say, well, but then you get sick, God makes you pay for it by getting sick. <laughs> then I don't need Christ, right? I already paid for it. Yeah. And if you say, well, you have to get sick forever. Yeah. Then it's not really a payment, right? You're not really paying for anything. Uh, yeah. I guess. Card now. They didn't always do this, but now they say you have to pay this much to eventually pay this off in 12 years. Yeah. They, on your, on your bill, they'll say that. So, so imagine that here, right? You have to suffer for eternity to never pay this off. Yeah. Right. Well, then it's not a payment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can, I can follow that. Now, just one last on this. There's uh, the evangelical fish squish, squish answer is that um, you have separated yourself from God. So when, when, when you deny God, when you break relation with him, God's still turning towards you, you know, son, come back to me, but yeah. you have your back to him. And so naturally you can't. And so really God isn't punishing us. You're punishing yourself. And so just turn back. What, what do you make? Is, is this punishment, this break of relationship, that's the punishment. Is that an active thing that God does? Or is it a passive thing that we've done because we've turned our back on him? Yeah, I mean, in, in some, so, so let's, let's see Romans 1. They're given over to a darkened mind. Mm-hmm. That's pretty active, I think. Okay. So that's one side. That's active. You're given over to a darkened mind. That's the wrath of God poured out on man. And that's what's interesting, right? People think the wrath of God, and you'll watch Supernatural or something, and you think <laughs> it's it's going to be like the physical boils are, are the wrath of God. But what it says there is the wrath of God is that darkened mind where you're denying the eternal power and divine, divine nature of God and putting something else in his place. That's way worse than boils. It really, it really is. It doesn't. I know, like the listeners, if if you're not accustomed to hearing this, it's way worse to not have the the right use of your mind. Like you could, you could have perfect health, but now your your mind doesn't work right, and you're gonna walk out in the street and get hit by a car or something. You know, so that's a really big deal. Evil and evil, good. Yeah. So imagine you're in perfect health, but you think what is actually evil is good. What a terrible existence. Right. Yeah. So. That's active. But then also second response to that is if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, the dead, the dead cadaver doesn't reach up and grab the uh, electrodes and zap himself back to life. Right. Or say, doctor, please help me. Mm -hmm. You're dead. And I think that's what Jesus gets to with Nicodemus when he says you have to be born again. Yeah. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. Right. But born again means you need to be brought back to life you can't bring yourself back to life just just like you didn't you didn't actively play a role in your own first birth likewise yeah why would you why would you be able to yeah participate so in that gets into soteriology and the what's called the ordo salutis mm-hmm. it you know there's no such thing as decisional regeneration mm-hmm. regeneration precedes any decision you make but whether or not that's in job will be interesting yeah um I think people would maybe want to bring that out about how does Job return to God at one level of description. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying the, uh, this person converted, they turned to God. Mm-hmm. It's if you press it and you say, Oh good, they saved themselves or they must be really smart because they figured it out. Right. Well, no, no, wait. I mean, they were able to convert because of the Holy spirit regenerating them. Mm-hmm. So this gets into levels of like how technical, what are you, what's the person talking about? If I'm just discussing with someone, they say, Hey, and then my, my, my dad finally converted. I don't think I'll stop them and say, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's get Hang the second. right here, pal. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So, so jumping back to Job then, and I think we can touch on that uh, later as well. Um, I think it's important. You're, you're a philosopher and you do this in your book uh, to define our terms, right? So what do we mean by evil? Yeah. Evil and suffering. Yeah. It's a big part of it is just coming to see. So, so I distinguish in, in philosophy, when we go through the problem of evil, we distinguish between moral evil and natural evil. And there's a problem of evil for both. Sometimes it's distinguished as the problem of evil and the problem of pain. So moral evil is uh, an act contrary to the good. And moral good is when you choose what is good. Mm-hmm. We can flesh that out. I think the book requires us to flesh that out more, but that's a quick answer. And then natural evil is things that befall us, but they're not due to moral choices. So you just, you're going about your life and you get a life-threatening illness. And it's not because you're smoking or, or eating sugar all day. It just happens to people or, or a tsunami hits and kills a thousand people. Uh, uh, Voltaire's big go-to example was an earthquake that hit Lisbon. Yeah, and what happened was it especially destroyed the cathedral, but preserved the uh, uh, bordello. Hmm. 
And so he said, look, where's God? He's killing the, the priests and preserving the prostitutes. Where's God? Yeah. So those we would have say an earthquake is, is due to human choice. I, I mean, I guess there might be a conspiracy theory. There's like. Yeah, I was going to I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. Elon Musk, you know, decides uh, he's he's had enough and drills into yeah. the center of the earth. But there's lots of earthquakes before Elon Musk. So we did Voltaire's <laughs> Lisbon earthquake is before before all that. So well, well actually, so bringing out this point, I, I, I wanted to ask you this because I, I think you'd have a unique answer. Maybe I've I've always thought, you know, one has intentional action behind it. And one's one's not doesn't have an in, intention mm-hmm. behind yeah. it. And so if you uh, created global warming on purpose and, you know, the, yeah. the waves rose, that, that would be uh, that would not be natural evil anymore. That would be moral evil because someone intentionally did that. But then God stands behind natural evil, right? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Is that you still have a world where that can even happen. Hmm. Right. So why is the world? Like, so both of these press us to this problem. Why is there evil in the first place? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Only, good call. There's only so many solutions. But the, the problem is this. Why didn't God make a world that was good? Mm. And the answer is he did. Mm. But a lot of times you don't hear that coming out of the solutions, right? You'll have some variation of, well, God's did this is the best he could do, or uh, natural evil makes us appreciate other things. All of those granting that somehow the original creation did have evil in it. Mm. And so they say, no, it originally didn't. And there's an order. Natural evil comes after moral evil. Yeah. So it's not just that they there wasn't any either one in the beginning. And then there is, but also get the order right of why there is. Mm-hmm. And then the book of Job is wrestling with that order and saying, yeah. all right, you're a really righteous guy, but you're suffering worse than anyone. The truth is you must be wicked. Yeah. So what I like about how the book of Job goes is it assumes you have a number of things in place already. And that's why people might miss it. And, and really a person's description of the book of Job tells us more about them than it does the book of Job yeah. a lot of times. That's good. Yeah. So if someone doesn't even know the nature of God, doesn't even know the world is made very good, doesn't even know what moral evil is or that it is before natural evil, then yeah, they're not. I mean, the book of Job will be a mystery to them. Hmm. And, and, and rightly so. They should get those things in place first. Yeah. So then the problem, let's get into the, the actual debate that's going on is it says Job is, is blameless. I, yeah. I, I read that in an analogous way to saying an elder should be blameless. Okay. No one confuses that with sinless or yeah. there'd be no elders. Right. But it means that you don't, no one has something where you can say, oh, he embezzled against me or, or he uh, did this or that. There's nothing like that going on. Yeah. Um, no outward major sins that need to be dealt with before you're an elder. So Job is like that. Okay. Blameless. What the story is going to show us is that we need to have a deeper understanding of what sin is and how it affects us and repent of that. Mm. And that comes out both in Job's understanding and his friends. that They have what I call in the book a fruit level understanding of sin, just like we would we have a weed and it grows some fruits. And we think we've made progress gardening if we cut the fruits off. Right. And if you've ever gardened, you you haven't. Yeah, still got roots there. So. You, you see some gross outward things and what the things that Job's friends blame him for get really, they, they get worse and worse and worse. It, it is crazy. They start with, with like the silence and it's like, okay, yeah, they're there with him. And then yeah. as it goes on, they just go at his character and it's like, dude, I thought you knew Job. He's a, he's a righteous yeah. man. I thought. Yeah. It gets, it gets really bad. And, and some of them are like, I don't even like to repeat what they say, hmm. how bad it gets. Yeah. And so, they're trying to make sense to make sense of extreme suffering. You must have had done extreme fruit sins. And we just didn't know about it this whole time. Yeah. Um, and I'm suggesting, well, here's why the suffering has to be extreme. It's not just that there's sin. It's that there's the other two things I mentioned, self-deception, self-justification. It was after Adam and Eve did those that God imposed naturally on the world. So the level of those what does it take to break through those in, for any of us? Hmm. This is what it takes. And if it took that for the most righteous man, we better strap ourselves in because we're no different than that. We're not different than Adam and we're not different than Job. We're going to construct false narratives about ourselves. We're going to want others to think our, very highly of us. And the truth is, this is what gets to the roots in. The truth is we didn't seek God. Mm-hmm. That's where Paul begins and the Psalms begin sin. 
Romans 3, 10 and 11. No one seeks, no one understands, no one does what is right. What's it going to take to get you, and I mean the, the plural you, not just you. What's it going to take you, humans, to see that you don't seek God, but you think you do? Yeah. So, yeah, um, man. Oh, and does this is what it takes, right? And and I, I like that answer, but I'm wondering. So I would I would give an answer, maybe different. I would say it's what it takes because of the story that he wants to tell. Because I I consider God the author of the world, and this is we're living in his novel. And so if he wants us in this story to understand him, this is what it it takes. When you say this is what it takes, do you? Do you think he could have done otherwise? God could have explained it. He could have created a world where there was no uh, there was no evil, or he could have helped you understand uh, without allowing so much evil or something. All right. So interesting. Let's get a question of directly in focus. So could he have helped me understand without so much evil? But let's go back to your author analogy. Yeah. The purpose is not simply to tell a story. Mm-hmm. But because I think that I, I'm not objecting to that, I think right. that's a, a better example than than God peers into all the possibilities and picks right. the best one. Right. Uh, uh, so the purpose of the story is the revelation of the glory of God. Exactly. Amen. So yeah. this is what it takes to reveal the glory of God. Okay. Great. So when you ask, could it have been done differently? God is not required to reveal His glory or the extent of His glory. Mm-hmm. So God could have revealed his glory without sin, but it wouldn't have revealed the depth of his justice and mercy. That's what the cross does. Amen. Okay. So that's the goal of this. And I think that's why God answers Job the way he does. I mean, think of what happens. I hope this is not jumping ahead too much, but Hmm. I want to deal with Eliphaz also, but I, 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 in in the, in chapter six of the book, I start out with just this question. Why doesn't God just answer Job's question? (laughs) Right. Job has a question, why is this happening to me? God could answer in three or four sentences. Mm -hmm. Instead, he goes into 70 plus questions. And that doesn't ever, he doesn't conclude those by answering, right? Just Mm -hmm. question, question, question. Have you considered? Have you considered? And all of those questions, and this is the part that especially got me because my field, I would say, is natural theology, general revelation. They're all general revelation questions. Yeah. There's obviously he's not quoting like, have you read the book of Luke or something? <laughs> uh, but they're all general relation questions. He doesn't say, did you consider what happened in the garden of Eden? Mm-hmm. Job's attention. And suddenly the, uh, the questioning of God there is very philosophical also. Mm-hmm. So I say Job's the first philosopher, but really I think say God shows us how to do philosophy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I do love the emphasis because I, I know that you are the natural revelation guy. And I'm, I'm glad to see you put your tools to work here as well, because he, he's talking about lions and he's talking about feeding the young lions. He's talking about Leviathan and Behemoth. Uh, I, I, maybe we can get to that, too, because I thought your analysis of that was 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 pretty good as well. <laughs> one one part that I had to mention, you you drop in some humor and, and some, some wisdom bombs here and there, but you, you talk about, Oh, there was some movie where some monkeys holding up a, a lion. I don't know if he's going to toss him up. I forgot. <laughs> it's all a circle of life, right? I thought it was so funny that you uh, weren't mentioning the name of lion King. Oh, there's some, yeah. some movie somewhere. Well, I've always wondered about that. Cause it looks like the, the monkey is holding up his baby lion to chuck him to all, all of the, uh, and my line, like they're paying the lions back. And all the animals down there are screaming, get him, get him, get him. Of course, that's not what's going on in the movie, but that, I always thought that's what it looks like. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I lost I lost our place because I definitely wanted to. And you can talk. always say, I liked The Lion King the first time I read it when I read Hamlet. Right. Yeah, totally. So, it, I mean, yes. Yeah, this book is different than my other ones on purpose. My other books so far are standard academic books. Cambridge, My last three are with Cambridge University Press. And so they're written like academic books. And in that way, there's some sense in which they're not accessible to everyone. So this is a different term. I'm going to do a few books like this. Uh, I want to do a com- philosophical commentary on Luke next. Hmm. And and they're meant to be not ac- – they're, they're, they're by an academic. So I don't think that they're anti-academic. But they're meant to be just more uh, readable, more um, more like a dialogue, really. Yeah. Well, and okay, so real quick, I really like what you're doing because it's a philosophical commentary. It's still a commentary, but it's philosophical. And yeah. this is what Peter Jordan Peterson's been doing, uh, psychological analysis. Mm-hmm. And 
I like a philosophical analysis analysis better, but but like Carl Jung has uh, an answer yeah. answer to Job, right? And and yep. he's got this psychological uh, treatise uh, on or, or commentary on. So I'm glad that you did one, and I'm glad that you do that. I, I hope that you do that, Luke. I hope you continue because we do need philosophers yeah. commenting on this stuff. Well, and, and I use that Jung book as one of the main, not main. There's about five or six commentaries that I especially interact with in my thinking. But <laughs> as an academic book, what I didn't do was say. I didn't flood the reader with 20 quotes and a hundred footnotes. Right. Um, I listed the commentaries I used in my mind and that formed my thinking on it at the end, but it, it just, it just wasn't a reference book, yeah. but Jung is one of them. I, I think I either directly quote him or I allude to him in a way that people would know uh, because his view is what we've called the Gnostic view. And you and I have talked about this before. Mm-hmm. And by that, what we mean is Yahweh is uh, the guy who started stuff off and he has two sons and the younger son is helping Yahweh understand things. So Young, I think the direct quote is something like this. Job had to learn things, but so did Yahweh. Yeah. So I, I interact with that Jungian. It's not, I, I want to say Jungian is psychology, psychology because I'd want to preserve that science and say that's a real science. Young is just bringing in Gnostic myths yeah. to interpret Job. And he does the same thing with Genesis 1 through 3. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. So the uh, the thing I think that's going on here is, in that chapter with God, he starts with the foundation itself. Yep. Were you there? And I don't think that, I mean, you, it's painful sometimes to read these commentaries because you'll have guys saying, see, in, in the era of Job, they thought there were four pillars the earth sat on top of. I know. Like, no, this is not a material foundation. No. The foundation of all things. Mm-hmm. God laid that. And you should know what it is. So from that very first one, convicting Job. Do you know the foundation? Were you there? When you laid it, and then, and then as you said, getting into some specific details about how the donkey does this, the lion does that, and in all of those, refl- drawing our attention back to the reality, the creation reveals the glory of God, and we haven't seen it. And I think that's the linchpin that you cannot let go of on Job, that fits the rest of the meaning in, which is that he says that explicitly. Now I see you, and to prevent us from thinking this is this is just a growth in information. Mm-hmm. Because you could tell your professor at the end of class, you could tell your theology professor, man, I really know more about God now. Thank you for helping me. But you don't follow up with what Job says next. Hmm. I repent and I abhor myself. So Job understands his failure to see as a sin that needs to be repented of. Hmm. And I think that's where Job gets to something for all of us. Just like we're not all going to be presented with a tree and a talking snake. Mm-hmm. But we are all going to be tested in putting ourselves in the place of God. So, too, we're not going to have God ask us 70 questions. But we are all going to be tested by the reality of general revelation around us day in and day out. Psalm 19 says the sun runs its path every day telling you God exists and you don't listen. Yeah. Well, um, we need to repent of that. Was was Job um, was. The thing that Job needed repented of, so he didn't see God, was uh, and and yeah, we're all tempted to put ourselves in the place of God, and and Job is one of us, and he did that even though he was a righteous man. Did he need to repent of his whole life of not seeing God, or specifically something in the Book of Job where he set himself up in the in the place of God, questioning him? This was this is why I think is really interesting. Is I think Job is helpful for everyone, but especially. Is meant for believers because I don't. I'm not saying Job wasn't a believer. Mm-hmm. You can be a believer, and Paul uses these this terminology: a, a child, an immature person. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned, uh, I think you used the phrase "evangelifish" earlier. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people read when Jesus says, "Permit the little children to come to me, for such is the kingdom of God." That we're all supposed to stay children. Now, unless you think Paul and Jesus are at, at odds, which some people do say that, if you think the canon, though, is consistent, Paul says, don't stay as little children. Grow up. Mm-hmm. When you should be a teacher, you still don't even know the very first things. So I think that's the condition we find Job, and he is righteous, more than these friends. But he hasn't yet repented of this. And the story of Job shows us what it's going to take, which is quite difficult, so that we need to have the fear of God in us when we mm-hmm. approach this. Mm-hmm. If we're casual about it, we're not going to get it. So I, I think you even mentioned this in your in your commentary that he that he started with the fear of of God, right? Didn't didn't? But maybe it was like an immature fear of God. I bring that up 
all of them talk about the fear of God. Okay. So I, I bring up the fact that uh, a, f- a number of the Beatitudes are already present in Job, just like they're already present in the Psalms and Proverbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a response to saying Jesus, Jesus has a brand new teaching of loving. Saying, well, no, Moses said, love God with all your heart, right? That's not new. Jesus is, is uh, reminding you what Moses told you to do. And the same with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are in the Psalms and Proverbs. And then we find them here. So what is the fear, though? Right? You see, the, the three friends have a kind of craven fear of God. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're going to get boils. Yeah. You better do what you're supposed to do. That's not the fear of God. Here's the fear of God. The wages of sin is death. Spiritual death forever. Mm-hmm. Meanlessness forever. And, and you should be afraid of that. Yeah, that's that's so helpful too to to talk about the the beatitudes being present in the Old Testament because it it the popular canard of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament yeah. Jesus for, and it's like no 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 he's just repeating what happened there and also Jesus talks about hell a lot so you know he's pretty severe as well if you think that's severe and uh, yeah it's just it's so helpful to see that the Bible hangs together that God is is God yeah, he's yeah. not yeah he's not split. Well, yeah, and that reading of two gods is really going back to Young. That's a Gnostic mm-hmm. reading of there's the evil lawgiver God, and then there's the liberating God who frees us from him. But, yeah, I think think about the imagery Christ uses for hell. Outer darkness where the fire burns continually. Mm-hmm. Well, just like with Job, just like let's call this literalism. Literalism takes things only physical. Yeah, It doesn't understand that the physical – is symbolic of spiritual truth. Well, you can't have outer darkness and fire together. That, I mean, that's the nature of fire mm-hmm. is it gives off light. And then the third thing that's joining is a worm that gnaws at you. Well, wouldn't the fire burn the worm up? Hmm. Like, how hot's the fire? So if you, if you press this literally, you get into these problems that people point out, and then the literalist has done a disservice to hell by fueling the objections yeah. instead of saying, well, these all hang together perfectly in this sense. The outer darkness is a description of the, the spiritual boredom that comes on having no purpose. Hmm. Your purpose is in God. If you've rejected that, you have no purpose whatsoever, which is usually that is described in gloomy colors, right? Mm-hmm. Fire describes what you, what do you throw on fire? Do you throw your most important things? Like do you round up your, your Raphael's and your, your uh, Michelangelo paintings and cast them into the flames. No, you, you throw meaningless things into there. Mm. It's used later on. The chaff is thrown into the fire. Yeah. Meaninglessness. And then if you're experienced guilt, you know that it feels like a worm gnawing at your stomach. Mm-hmm. Guilt forever. You recognize you're guilty and you can't do anything about it. So you have these three rallies. It's called spiritual death. And we see Adam and Eve immediately wrestling with those after the sin. Because it doesn't say the day you eat, you'll die 900 years later. Right. It says the so day you eat, you'll surely die. Mm-hmm. And we see them immediately wrestling with that problem. And their solution is to cover it up. Mm. And, and people don't realize that. They have another option. They could have immediately repented and prayed. Mm-hmm. And they don't do that. Yeah. They make it worse. And then God himself asks them about what happened. They could, hey, I, we've messed up, right? We really blew it. They don't. They double down. Mm-hmm. That's when natural evil hits. So it's not, and it's interesting, God doesn't debate with them at any point. He doesn't say, you guys know what you did is wrong. You know it. You better confess. It's just, where are you? Blame each other. Natural evil. Yeah. So the 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 friends of Job are wrong to make it an equation, a one-to-one with sins. You started worshiping the moon, your kids died. Uh Job is wrong to say this doesn't make any sense. I've been doing what's right. God needs to account. He needs to answer for it. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's what Elihu especially blames Job with. And so Elihu gets a few different readings. Some people lump him in as another friend, a fourth friend. Yeah, I've noticed this too. Yeah. And, and, and uh, others say, no, Elihu is preparing the way for what, what, what God says. He has a kind of a John the Baptist role or John the Baptist has an Elihu role, he's preparing the way for Job. And and we know that both for two reasons. We know that from what Elihu says, what he says, God ends up saying also, Mm -hmm. and then that God doesn't rebuke him at the end. Yeah. He tells Job, offer sacrifices for those three friends. 
Yeah, right. So, so do you do you take the John the Baptist? Uh, is it is it is it um, not quite? Is it like he's preparing the way? It's not totally sufficient, or it's not totally accurate. Uh, what, what do you make of Elihu? Yeah, he. What I, what I think happens with him is we see it prevents us from saying you must have special revelation to get it. Elihu isn't an angel. He's a human, a younger human even, and he gets it and convicts Job of it. Mm-hmm. So you can't back up and say, well, Job had to have special revelation from God. Because even then, though, I, I would say, well, it's, I guess it's special revelation about natural revelation. Mm-hmm. But Elihu gets it, and he says uh, preemptive things that God amplifies to what God says. Yeah. So I'd, And it's something that's what's – this is what's great too in that in that final chapter. I now I abhor myself and I repent, and then God doesn't say great. It's all done. He says, "Offer sacrifices for your friends." In other words, the final solution to this is vicarious atonement. Mm. Something else still must die in your place. Yeah, and we know Job knew about this from the beginning, right? He's affirming the need for a sacrifice from the beginning of the book, and that's the book from that perspective ends with that affirmation. So you can find, I was careful not to do too much of the fine Christ in Job, because I think that could make us, that's a reading back now as Christians. I want, and there are things that prefigure Christ, but the teaching of vicarious atonement is just right there specifically. You Mm -hmm. can't miss that. Yeah. The the finding Christ, I, I also, I, I didn't want to pull that out too quick, but, but the mediator, right? Like it, it, Job is saying is, you know, is there a mediator between, it's like the search for, I need a third party here to mediate. And none of these guys can do it. None of them are standing in the place for me. Uh, does, does Elihu fit that mediatorial role or, or is this, is this looking for, you know, the, the prefiguring of, of Christ? Yeah. It's interesting because I, I, I love that verse. I mean, it's got to be one of your like, top three verses in Job. If it gets pushed too far, I think it goes too far, mm-hmm. and then the case falls apart. It's like you put too much weight on it. Yeah. I, I, as I was told the other day, uh, enrolling with my my instructor, I went to for Americana too soon. I want it so bad, I just tried to go for it, and I, mm-hmm. and I pressed the point. It's not ready for it yet. You got to wait. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing here. It's like, yeah, I really want to get Jesus in there. He talks about Redeemer. He talks about someone in meteor. That must be him. That must be Jesus. Well, I think let's not jump too far. Let's go step by step. Uh, it's a kind of legal format. Mm-hmm. The whole book is a legal format as if there's a trial. And Job says that's what he wants is a trial. Right. And so he's been accused. He doesn't know about the accusation of Satan, but he knows of the accusation of his friends. Mm-hmm. And so you'd naturally have a defender. You'd have your, your own defender, your paraclete who, uh, serves as your lawyer well and so so he has the accusations of his uh he doesn't know about satan but from his friends also would you say that job has the the mechanical view of of divine retribution he, he's experiencing all this pain and saying i don't deserve this pain as well so that's like an accusation or, or would you not go that yeah far? well that's what he's that's what god finally charges him with mm-hmm. is you justified yourself instead of me yeah how could you have done that yeah and that's convicting man that should just cut you to the mm-hmm. heart um so the the idea of having defender doesn't get us to vicarious atonement the same way the sacrifices do. Okay. I want someone to defend me and explain this to God, but your case might not be a good one. It might fall apart. Yeah. I mean, even the best lawyer, you may not win. You might spend a hundred grand on a lawyer and lose. Mm-hmm. So what is the mediator? I think it's preparing us for that greater revelation of who Christ will be. Okay. Without without jumping steps, because if you jump, it's like going up a staircase and you try to go from step one to five and you just trip and fall down. Yeah. You got to go steps one, two, three, four. So let's just start with this. This is what happened in the garden. They were covered with coats of skin. Mm -hmm. Animals don't live after you take their skin off. Right. So right there in the garden, there was a vicarious atonement offered. Yeah. The, the proto euangelion. uh, But you also know, yeah, but you also know that can't be the final one because then we find Abel doing it again. We find Noah doing it again. We find Abraham doing it again. So there's a recognition that this is only symbolic. This is not the actual sacrifice. Yeah. And that's where we get the height of revelation in Abraham. Mm-hmm. Offer your son, your only son. Yeah. So, yeah, that's great. So um, this is what 
I, I like your uh, your caution about the media mediatorial role. Uh, Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson, for those listening, uh, in, in his biblical theology class, he would often say that. And he'd say, don't push this too far. They're, these are the seeds. Here's the yeah, seed. I and use that same thing. That's a good one. And it starts to grow, and you can see it's progressively revealed. And because that's that's what God does. He's progressively revealing himself to humanity through Scripture. Yeah. I like that. I use that same one. I think that's really good. Or an organic reading, meaning not that you don't use pesticides, but that yeah. it grows at its own pace. You can't like go out there and yank the tomato a little faster to make it grow yeah. more. Right. And and so you can see, hey, there is this kind of mediator. Is there any mediator between God and man? And then you continue on the biblical theology. But to press that too hard, like you're saying, it, it collapses. And now you you messed up the whole thing. But, and also that it, it takes our attention off what Job I, I guess in one way, if someone's listening to this, you say, well, he kind of ruined the book. Yeah, I haven't – I'm not treating this as a mystery novel. I, I kind of told you here's my conclusion, right? But right? I think the book is still worth reading. Yeah. Um, but – and let me tell you this. I wrote the book in style and length and without academic things like a thousand footnotes, thinking about C.S. Lewis's problem of pain. Mm-hmm. And the problem of pain by C.S. Lewis – is it okay if I get get in trouble? Yeah, it, it, it doesn't answer the problem of pain. Yeah, I wanted a book around that length, written in an engaging style that does answer the problem of pain. Yeah, no, you can uh, get in trouble with that one. I think that's his worst book, actually. So, yeah, you're good. All right, good. So, uh, but but you can see what I mean. Where that's an easy to pick up book. It's not too long. It addresses a really important question, and it's it's reverberated through the last whatever it is seventy years. Well, we need one that actually answers why there's pain. And and, and here it has to get us to do this. Uh, repent of the same thing Job did. Every Christian mm-hmm. has to repent of that. We can be a Christian. This is not about who is and is not a Christian. Like I said, I think Job was a believer before the end of the book. Uh, but what we see is God's – this is what's fascinating. This is where it turns on its head. The book of Job starts off with them saying, why is God punishing me? Mm-hmm. It turns out that the whole book was God's tender care yeah. for Job, his servant, to bring him to see the excellence of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And Job got that and and fell on his face and repented. And that's that's the thing. He, Job got that by the end. Like he mm-hmm. was like, "Now I see you, and now I get it." And and he was considering considering himself in a better position at the end. Yep. Even though all of us are like, you know, that's hard. And holy cow, you know, all his kids died. Well, we haven't even talked mm-hmm. about his kids. Is that a yeah. fair thing? One man yeah. should be blessed while all of his children died, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that they, uh, yeah, that's right. So we can talk about his kids. I do I do deal with both that problem and the Satan problem. Because mm-hmm. he also gets put into, well, it's not sure. I mean, there's a heavenly thing going on. And Job's kind of like the, the uh, what's it? So, so am I now. The casualty of war. Oh, um, um, yeah. He's collateral damage or collateral damage. Yeah. So it's like Satan and God are still going at it. And poor Job's life gets messed up and <laughs> right. let alone his kids. Right. So yeah, I look at that one and say, no, that's not what's happening. And, and, and I look at his kids as well to say, well, yeah, I mean, basically is this, each of them has their own story. Yes. Our own physical death is ahead of each one of us. It's not as if we didn't know that, you know, at this point in our life, mm-hmm. they're holding these parties and they're they're uh, asked for their life at that point. Um, they each have their own story before God. They're not just in Job's story, but where were they at before God? Why was their father concerned about them? Was it misplaced concern, or do they have a real problem going on in their life? So I, I don't think the fact that they're part of Job's story takes away that they have their own story before God also. I, I love that, especially because I like the authorial analogy motif that we are all we all do have our own stories that God's written. And so, yeah, that, that could be uh, God taking them home. Hey, it's your time now. Or that could be his, his punishment because everyone who dies dies because of God. Like God could have, you know, he, he's written the story. He's given us the amount of days that we have. He is sovereign over the whole thing. And so we are zoomed in on Job's story. We could have just as easily been zoomed on, on, on one of the, ch- the children's stories. Yeah. They instead. have their own. Yeah. It's the same right. thing for each of them. And uh, and so this is what I point out with Satan is I love this part. I use it through the whole book. Consider my servant Job. Mm-hmm. And Satan 
uh, comes before God, and, and apparently he doesn't believe in the perseverance of the saints. I'm not going so far as to say Satan is Arminian, but uh, if you remove the good things you give Job, he'll curse you to your face. That's mm-hmm. a strong statement, right? And, and what does that mean about Job? Job loves God because God pays him to love him. Right. What does that make Job? So it's a significant accusation against God and, and Job. And the revelation of the book then is God's in charge of all those things. Mm-hmm. God's tender love for Job is not simply, I'm going to prove to Satan. This is how this is how uh, Young reads it, right? Yahweh wants to prove to his younger son that he's wrong, and he and Job is collateral damage. Yeah. And and God has to kind of realize later, man, maybe I was too hard on Job to make to win my my bar bet with my younger son. Yeah. So no, God's revealing something in a way as if he could to Satan, because I'm not saying Satan's going to get it, but it reveals it to all the rest of us, which is all this was God's tender love for the person he called my servant from the beginning to the end. Mm -hmm. My servant, Job, that never changed. Satan thought he could change that. And of course he can't change that. Mm -hmm. And then it not only doesn't pluck Job away from God, Job adheres to God even stronger. So that's why I end my book by saying all of us need to consider God's servant Job. Yeah. That's what the book calls us to do. Have you considered God's servant Job? I look at five common, what I think are misreadings. And if you've done those, you haven't considered God's servant Job. If, if the book of Job doesn't bring you to the same place that brought Job to, you haven't considered God's servant Job. Right. Well, and I love the, the there's, there's his tender love for Job. There's the revelation that all of us have now. And we, you and I are able to have this conversation because of what took place. And we're able to know a fuller, deeper revelation of God and his love for Job and for his elect as well. And it's a, a, a thumb in Satan's eye on, on, on top of all that. Yeah, he's not even mentioned. I think that's on purpose. I mean, he's so badly defeated. The story moves on and doesn't need to mention him. <laughs> right. That's a great um, literary point. Yeah. Yeah. That that, that that obviously wasn't the whole goal of the story. Yeah. Being that it wasn't, he wasn't even in the end. Yeah. There was no resolution to that bet or whatever, if you want to call it a bet. Yeah. So that's another one where people might put too much weight. Like, just like we talked about that with the redemption, the, the uh, mediator, they might put too much weight on the heavenly uh, hosts and what God, and that's where the reality happens is between the angels mm-hmm. and humans are just kind of going along instead of saying, no, just the opposite, right? Angels want to look into these things. Mm-hmm. This is where the spiritual battle's at. And we're looking at Job, and it's not just if we're doing what Job did, we're not just cleaving to God stronger and you know, like a an even my knuckles white, an even more white knuckled fideism. That's not mm-hmm. what he did. He repented of not having seen God. And I don't know that our listeners are going to even hear that because Job didn't hear that. Yeah. You haven't seen God. You haven't pursued God. You haven't sought God in general revelation. And, and that should cause you to repent. Yeah. So what is the role then? What is the role then of um of special revelation? So so we haven't we haven't done that with with natural revelation. So now we, we focus on this a lot. You focus on it even more than I do. Um, I, I don't want to leave here with, with people thinking, oh, we don't need special revelation, right? Yeah. Well, so it's interesting because it might say, well, that, that's kind of sound like deism. No. I mean, read the deist. Read Tom Paine. They don't get to the things that God directed. Tom Paine isn't simply guilty because he rejected scripture. He's guilty because he claimed to love nature. He doesn't mm-hmm. do any of the things that God pointed Job to do. So it's not yeah. deism at all. Deism usually gives us a kind of distant, faraway God who set up a mechanical world, and that's what's in charge. And I, I think I've done this to you before, but let me do it to you now because I, I'm not assuming that all of your readers have have watched every one of our interviews. Mm-hmm. But here's what we should know from, from general revelation. This is Westminster Confession, Chapter 21. Because a lot of times people say, well, you have kind of a bare view of God. That, that's all general revelation gives you. Well, here's what the Westminster Confession says. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. So that that's not a guy who knocked over the first domino. He has sovereignty over all things that come to pass. 
Right. He's good and does good unto all and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. Hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> if we haven't seen that, we should repent. Hmm. And say, why haven't I seen that? I need to find that out. But then you say, okay, so then we don't need scripture. No, that's the next sentence, right? But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan. I like that added to that in part because there could be some things that people claim to be the worship of God, which are actually the the suggestions of Satan. So special relation comes in precisely because we missed general revelation and we need to be redeemed. You can't explain redemption from general revelation. Mm-hmm. That's purely special revelation topic. Yeah. What general revelation could tell you is God, but then it can also tell you, you haven't sought God. You're in sin. Yeah. Do you, do you think that um, had we not sinned, Adam and Eve, had they not sinned, that uh, special revelation and general revelation would have just been hand in hand the whole time or would yeah, what, what do you think? What do you make of that? Well, just by definition, there wouldn't have been redemptive revelation, right? Yeah, because right. without sin, you don't need redemption. So right. then you have this idea of God walking with Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. You may have them established them and their posterity could have been established in a covenant with God, so that that's perpetual and continuing. Yeah, and so someone could say that's a kind of special revelation. God's with them. God tells them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Good and that's not general revelation. That's special revelation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but that's that's not what we now mean by special relation. We mean the canon of redemptive scriptures. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's 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 a great point. Well, this is this has been awesome. And so, like you said, it's not a uh, mystery novel. Um, and the like you didn't get if you're listening right now, you didn't get the full story on the book. Like you've gotten gotten a good taste, but you need to go get the book. Uh, it's Job: A Philosophical Commentary. Uh, Owen, where, where can they find this? So you can find this at any of the online booksellers, uh, of course, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, A Books, any of those. And uh, you can follow me on my webpage, drowenanderson.com, my YouTube channel where I post a couple lectures a week, uh, Dr. Owen Anderson on YouTube. And I also have my own Patreon account uh, where I have even additional information for my patrons, at, which is also just mm-hmm. Dr. Owen Anderson. Awesome. I. I don't, my Wi-Fi might be given out here, but uh, dude, this has been so awesome. I, I love this book. This is really helpful. I love the way you wrote it. Every now and then I'd be sad because I'm like, oh, I do I do like footnotes. I'm one of those weirdos who likes that. But um, yeah, it, it, it's written it's written with your voice. I can hear you when I was when I was reading this. So that was really fun as well. Uh, I, I love the book. Thanks so much for uh, for producing it for us. Well, I, I appreciate it. Thanks for reading it. And thanks for having me on to discuss it. It's always a enjoyable time. And you and I still have a a future rolling session. I can't wait for, I know you're going to school me, but it's still going to be fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, this, uh, this conversation uh, is going to, this is going to be it for the conversation. Lord willing, we can talk some more. I know uh, Dr. Anderson is going to come on again, um, but for now, it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory to God.